Are you a Genzibar user or super user? Well, it's time to jam at Genzibar Jam, May 31st through June 3rd in Orlando, Florida. Register today at jam.genzibar.com. Are you ready to revolutionize your higher ed marketing game? Don't miss out on Element 451's Engage Summit, June 27 and 28. Explore the cutting edge world of education and AI technology and unleash your creativity like never before. Register today at engage.element451.com and use promo code EDUP50 for $50 off. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the EdUp Experience podcast where we make education your business. Dr. Joe Salusio back with you on another episode. And guys, I'm going to soapbox just for a moment. I've been waiting for today's episode. I just put out a, as you listen to this, it's going to be two or three weeks afterwards, but I put a post out on LinkedIn and I was reading this article by a, um, a Chronicle reporter who was talking about the turnover in admissions, in particular, um, looking at the, um, the, reg, the uh, AA ACRO, you, you know what you, you know what I'm talking about, their, uh, you, their registrar group. And they were tracking um, uh, the tenure of university admissions coordinators and counselors and that these folks are usually in their role for two years or less sometimes on the younger side lots and lots of turnover and i thought to myself boy with all the enrollment challenges we are having is an industry the one thing we cannot afford is to have turnover in recruiters in our our recruiters um, sometimes undervalued and underappreciated and you know if you think about salespeople uh, in other industries usually those people are well compensated, they have career pathing, and somehow in higher education, we haven't done as well of a job as we can do uh, showing those career paths to people who start in admissions, letting them stick around for multiple years, making sure they don't leave because the surest way to prosperity in higher ed is to make sure we don't lose the people that are talking to the students. And so anyway, I'm gonna take that just for a minute. That's my soapbox for the day. I've done, there's, there's two um, uh, ladies here that are just going, shut up, get us on. I'm gonna do that right now. I'm gonna bring on now my, th th I'm gonna just keep tally marking her. She's a three-time <laughs> guest, now a two-time co-host, which means I have to send her the co-host mug now that it's her second time. I gotta send her the Ed Up co-host mug, but she doesn't know that yet. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. She's the CEO of Lucy, and she is the one and only Laura Ibsen. Laura, what's going on? Listen, great to be back, Joe. I'm really excited about the conversation today with Dr. Woodley and um, Beyond Texas because she's seen a lot of innovation and transformation in higher education. And I know we're going to learn a lot from her. So um, awesome to be. Thanks. Well, and you know what I love about you being a now second time co-host is that you're still allowed to make the rookie co-host mistakes, which is not to introduce the guest before I do, but that's okay. Oh, that's shoot. Why, that's why See, I keep doing that. Now, after the second time, but let's get her in now. She is the one and only Dr. Sandra Woodley. She's the president of the University of Texas Permian Basin. And see, now we've caught up. We live, we live in all the organic goodness of these podcasts. How are you, Sandra? How are you doing? I'm excellent. Great to be here with you today. Well, we hope you're ready. Um, let me just say I'm humbled by like the absolute power of the two women that I'm talking to today. <laughs> I can just kind of feel uh, the energy. Um, and Sandra, you've uh, you've been doing in higher ed for a while, doing amazing work. But let's start with UTPB. Is that is that the uh, that's the, do you say that? Is that yes, UTPB, absolutely. UTPB. I gotta have to get used to that. In the, on the time. <laughs> what is it that you do, and how do you do it? 
Well, we, we run an amazing university here of 7,000 students in the heart of the biggest energy producing area in the country and, you know, pretty close to in the world. And so, you know, we work really hard to make sure that what we do is relevant in this community, that our graduates uh, are what's needed here, that they find jobs, research, innovation. Uh, you know, the University of Texas Permian Basin is an important university and a very important place in our nation. Little unknown fact, maybe it's known to you, I know this, but maybe not to the rest of higher ed, but the, um, when people talk about endowments and they talk about dollars that universities generate, um, the University of Texas Permian Basin, that area is a huge contributor to the University of Texas and the, um, uh, uh, the ability for the University of Texas to supersede for the next hundreds and hundreds of years because of what it produces. Can you talk a little bit about that and the, your contribution? Well, to there the are system? 2 million acres of uh, university lands here in, in my backyard that generate billions of dollars for the University of Texas system and Texas A&M. And so it's capital dollars that, that come into play. You know, right now, this year, I received a uh, more than $50 million uh, for this little small university out of what's called PUF funding, Permanent University Fund, that is funded from these 2 million uh, acres here to, to uh, renovate our oldest building and to do a campus transformation. So you're absolutely correct. I mean, I've worked in uh, five university systems, I think, in counting, and the uh, University of Texas system is pretty impressive, and that's one of the reasons why. All right. Well, that was impressive. Um, one, something else that's impressive is, of course, my co-host, Laura Ibsen. Laura, I'm going to let you jump in right away because I know you're excited to talk to Sandra. Listen, um, you're at the heart of really important part of our economy. And as we um, are going towards the end of Earth Week, I'm just curious about where you see sustainability coming in with your students, how that impacts the community, your new building, and and certainly the, the whole energy field is ripe for transformation. How do you think about that as a university president and someone who's spent a lot of their career on business and economic um, uh, types of opportunities for the state? Well, you know, it, it has been really enlightening in my six years here to, to be in the heart of the energy uh, producing uh, area here. And, you know, we have a, a really unique situation here where we have a, a coalition of the 20 largest oil and gas companies, the PSP, Permian Strategic Partnership. They've been around for about five years. They have invested millions of dollars in healthcare and education. I myself have received more than $13 million to really ramp up healthcare programs, nursing and pre-med. Uh, they're going to be investing in behavioral health. But these companies and the energy industry here really do a lot around sustainable, uh, uh, state-of-the-art, cutting-edge, uh, sustainable practices as well. They don't, I think, tell their story very well uh, and working harder on that. But I don't feel uh, that this is just, you know, fossil fuel uh, land here, you know, wind and solar and you know, innovations around water, water uh, recycling. You know, one of the things that I'm most proud of here is our engineering and geology programs that really fit so well into what's happening here. We have a 
Water and Energy Research Institute and Advanced Manufacturing Institute. So, you know, for a, a non-research one university, we have a lot to offer, not just about the workforce and our graduates, but also in really connecting incubator type activities with oil and gas companies and industry and, and our faculty and these areas of applied research that matter so much to our region. No, that's I mean, wonderful. Wonderful. I ran an energy business. I've worked with many of those energy companies and um, knowing that you're in the heart of it with students that um, are looking to have impact and diversification in energy. Uh, I agree with you that it's about the messaging, but so many of those companies are are working to improve uh, sustainability and and you're right at the heart of that ecosystem. So I think exciting opportunity for your students. Well, it is. And, you know, a really great synergy between, I mean, we say out here in the Permian Basin, you know, everybody's in the oil and gas industry. Epic. Um, it, it, it is a really, uh, uh, obviously an important part of our economy, but to have this uh, uh, industry coalition that's coming in, investing in safe roads and, you know, ramping up nursing degrees and pre-med degrees and all of the uh, things that they're investing in K-12, they've invested in K-12 education. You know, so it's just such an innovation uh, opportunity for our students and our faculty to see industry and education and the community working so closely together to solve the problems that will continue to prop up uh, uh, the energy industry's ability to fuel uh, our national economy. And, and also, uh, you know, uh, national security too, right? Energy independence Absolutely. is a pretty important uh, issue there. It is. It is. Well, congratulations on being part of and bringing that community together too. education's at the core of it. Do you think yeah, it's, it's a it's a great community to be in? And I tell you, you know, one of the things that we've worked really hard on here in my six years is to get very specific about making sure that our programs are relevant. Uh, and that our curriculums within our programs are relevant. And that's hard to do. Faculty, you know, it's very difficult to uh, overhaul a program that's been around for a long time. Nailed it. Uh, but we've had some success in, in thinking uh, uh, innovatively around how can we connect more closely with our energy, uh, not just energy, but all of our industry partners. And one of the things that, um, uh, that we worked on really hard is internships. You know, those paid uh, experiential learning opportunities for our students to get out, uh, have a paid experience. And let me tell you, our students are in high demand, and particularly those that have connected, you know, as interns. Uh, they get hired very fast. Well, that's wonderful. And, and this topic of internships and the critical need to make sure that we pay interns. Right. They're all paid, came up at the ASU GSV conference and leaders mm -hmm. like Ted Mitchell, uh, the president of ACE raised this and, you know, everyone on the panel said, pay your interns, because I think even through COVID, uh, some internships aren't paid and those students need to be paid and that that shows that you really value them as well. So that's exciting to hear on that. Well, and, and there's such a disparity uh, among those who can afford an unpaid and a paid now, even better. And that was the issue around, you know, some can can afford their parents can pay and it's the ones that can't that that we need to support because that is the pathway into a full time career is getting that internship opportunity. Well, and most of our students work uh, full time. Wonderful. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I 
my, you know, my own pathway to higher education is not typical of most university presidents. I got married at 18, I had two kids and, you know, I worked full time and stopped in and stopped out when the transmission went out. And, you know, it, it would take me 10 years uh, to become the first person in my family to earn a university degree. And wow. that's typical of many of our students. So they really, uh, they're scrappers. They're scrappy <laughs> in the, all the best ways, right? They they have this work ethic and they, the stick-to-itiveness to continue to do it. But these are not students who graduate in four years. And, you know, uh, many times I have to remind our policymakers and others that, you know, uh, you can't judge the value of a university by a four-year graduation rate for only those first-time in college students. Most of That's my students aren't even in That's that. That's a fact. Statistic. Uh, they're not even in that statistic. And, and what's more important is that they find their pathway to success. And we're really good at helping students get through. But I don't consider myself a failure. And I don't consider our students a failure that take longer than six years. And we got to really change that dynamic a little bit. I, I agree. I know I need to turn it back to Joe, but the journey is different for everyone. Uh, Joe, I'd love for you to maybe push on some of the Knowing that um, Sandra's background in policy, what are some of the core policies that you're passionate about, whether it's pathways, first generation learners that, that you are advocating at a state and, and, and probably national level as well? Well, you know, back to this, uh, you know, conversation around how do we uh, evaluate the performance of an institution? You know, I think it's really important in, in my you know, background and working for so many systems and such a wide diversity and range of different types of institutions has provided me insight that allow me to understand that uh, institutions provide different opportunities. You know, it is very important to have UT Austin and, uh, you know, University of Miami Modern, University of Auburn and, and other universities that are flagship that are, are selective and that you know, most of their students come in right out of high school and they don't have to work full-time, many of them. They have you know, the ability to graduate in four years. That is an important uh, type of institution. True. The University of Texas Permian Basin, who serves a different kind of student body, is no less important, but it is different. True. So we have to make sure that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater in the way that we provide incentives or disincentives for universities you know, to be successful. If, if I were only going to be measured on my four-year graduation rate, the, the best way for me to get better is not to take the students that rely on me to get a degree. Yes. I, I would have to take fewer students and only those that were really going to succeed anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, you, you so, end up cutting off, you bottleneck the front end. Right. Which a lot of times, and I'm not saying all, but there are faculty and one of the rubs working with some faculty members is, well, we don't want students that aren't going to be succeeding our courses. And you go, who, who is that exactly? Because on the front end in admissions, we'd surely like to know how to take the red pill or the blue pill. It is not that simple. How do you measure grit? How do you measure that? Right. How do you know until somebody gets in there? You know, is grit having kids young as, as a mom and, 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 you know, raising two kids and then going back to work, because that's pretty gritty, if you ask me. But if that person hasn't been in school for 10 years or 15 years, how do you guarantee success? How do you say, well, we want them to be successful? They're going to need a lot of support coming in. And so how do you right. include instead of exclude? Because it's really, really easy to nail that four-year grad rate 
if you take 10 students instead of well if you only take the you know the top you know 10 in every single high school that's you know and, and listen i'm not disparaging that because uh that's that's valuable as well but i do think the the uh the complicated uh way in which students uh uh, make their way through the through the university and the complicated way in which universities like mine have to be uh, comp- uh, compartmentalize the different areas that we're trying to serve. So I also want to uh, uh, increase my four and six year graduation rate. I'm not, uh, you know, disparaging that. Uh, but the, there's a group of students for which that is most relevant. At the same time, I have to make sure that I have different support systems in place. For those students like me who couldn't be more beside the point that it would cost me less if I could graduate in four years. Nobody's paying my rent bill. Nobody's buying diapers, right? right? So uh, to to make sure that we are uh, uh, diligent about meeting our students where they are and making sure that we have uh, differentiated strategies for the different kinds of students that we serve. Do you think that the the infrastructure needs to look different too, right? If you, you've worked, I mean, you were at the University of Louisiana system, 90,000 students, you know, all different types of institutions that you've worked with around and for. If you're working with um, students who have been engineered in a way that you're going to school for four years, you've, you've had the means, you're going, this is what you're going to do, versus uh, someone like yourself who had kids and you, you know, there's just a difference is there a different infrastructure internally that needs to exist to serve students of different types? And what are some of those differences? Well, in my case, for example, I'm not interested in uh, student. When I was going through school, I had no time for student organizations and I'm not going to football games. And, you know, I'm not going to be on the student government association. That was, you know, I didn't have time for any of that. That was unimportant to me. But was, what was important to me is childcare. What was important to me is to make sure that I had financial help that that allowed me to continue to make progress, even during those times when I couldn't go full time. Uh, so that's a different, you know, kind of set of, of uh, 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 support system that was needed for me. Now, uh, in all of the institutions uh, in the Louisiana for uh, Louisiana system, uh, for instance, they also needed to make sure that they had honors programs and that they did reach out to the top graduates in the high schools, particularly Louisiana Tech and, you know, you, you know, uh, University of Louisiana Monroe and uh, um, Lafayette. Those were, you know, higher research uh, type institutions that did uh, serve more of that kind of student clientele and they had a lot more research. So they had doctoral programs, right? And they had you know, uh, uh, student, uh, uh, you know, workers who were able, graduate assistants who were able to help in that. But an institution like, uh, you know, Grambling or or University of Texas Permian Basin, it's a different culture and there are different priorities. And I think it's really important for system leaders and policymakers to understand the value uh, that accrues in all of the ecosystem of institution and not to have a one size uh, fits all mentality. 100%. Sandra, do you think some, do you see some great best practices, whether it's in Texas or Louisiana around some of those wraparound services that are more personalized, whether it's to mothers or learners coming back from the workforce and upskilling um, what, what are some of the programs that you may have been involved in? 
Yeah, well, I think the institutions that do it the best, and we're working really hard to be one of those institutions, is you know to make sure that you you learn from your students and that you spend time listening to what they need and that you model your programs around that. You know, uh, we have found that it is important, for example, to understand from our students how they like to be communicated with. You know, some students aren't going to read it in email. I don't care how many times you send an email, right? <laughs> so we've, we have slaves. My daughter. <laughs> right? My daughter. They don't want to talk to somebody on the phone. Please, they would rather, you know, take a, have a root canal than have to have a phone <laughs> exactly. conversation with someone. Exactly. And I kept telling my children, you can't do everything with text. You just can't. You have to talk to somebody. They certainly <laughs> are going to try, though. They're going to try real They're going to try. My daughter will avoid picking up the phone to the point where it's like, mom, will you? I'm like, you're 19. You can yeah. do this. Well, I got a 27 year old is that way. I'm like, you're going to have to call your own doctor. You're going to have to do that. <laughs> but, but I do think that, you know, with these programs that we have that can be very customized, like our slate program is, you know, our system of communicating that we're standing up right now. What we're working really hard to do is to try to compartmentalize and understand which groups of students need which kinds of support and communication and assistance. I mean, we have some very high performing students who come right out of high school whose parents and grandparents have all gone through this. They don't need much from us and they don't want much from us in the way of communication to help them. We, right. you know, you, you, you tend to lose them if you kind of overhandle, uh, you know, the situations. But there are many like me, nobody, I had no way to know how to navigate. I was open to any kind of support. So I think customization is really important in listening. It's time to jam. Oh, oh, oh yeah. At Genzabar Jam, the annual meeting for the Genzabar community in Orlando, Florida, May 31st through June 3rd, 2023. You are invited to join us for the annual gathering of this Genzabar community at the Gaylord Palms Resort in Orlando, Florida. Don't miss it. You're going to discover new tips and tricks that you can save your office time, resources, and money every single day. It's time to jam. Register now at jam.genzabar.com. Oh, yeah. Don't settle for average marketing strategies. Join us at the Element 451 Engage Summit, June 27 and 28, and discover how to harness the power of AI technology in higher ed marketing. Connect with industry leaders, explore cutting-edge technologies, and future-proof your marketing strategies. Use promo code EDUP50 for $50 off. Register now and engage.element451.com. You know, I got to ask, since I have you both here, Laura, I'm going to put you back on the other side of the mic for a second. Um, you guys are two presidents, CEOs, women. Um, you don't it doesn't happen without challenges women in the workforce and particularly in higher education there aren't as many women presidents as there are men that's well known there aren't it ha the needle hasn't moved as much as i think everybody thought it would move um first to you sandra and then laura if you would what is what's some advice that you give to female leaders out there that are aspiring to the highest levels of leadership in higher education and higher ed uh, in ed tech well, you know, here's what worked for me because I was not on the provost faculty. I was not on the typical pathway. It was an uphill battle for me all around to find myself here. And so one of the things that that I did was to seek out wherever I was uh, in my uh, uh, 
career to seek out uh, projects that I could uh, excel in and learn from that were thankless jobs that didn't give you more pay. Um, so work outside your job description. Number one, because you learn so much from taking on those experiences and you get noticed for your uh, ability to achieve uh, things and to take on, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, jobs that nobody else wants. Well, gosh, I've learned the most from taking on these challenging opportunities. And then the second thing I would say is not to plan your career so tightly. You know, you don't know what's in front of you. I, don't, I didn't know how long it would take for me to get to the president's position, or even if I would ever achieve it uh, because of the uphill battle. But what I did know is I could select my career opportunities based on what was interesting to me and, and that gave me the most opportunity to stretch my uh, you know, abilities and to learn and then to be able to excel. So don't plan too tightly and, and work way outside your job description without pay or title changes. Excellent. Laura? I, I love that. I feel like I'm in a mind meld with you. Um, <laughs> and I was raised, huh. you know, I was raised with a very strong mother who spent her whole life in higher education. She raised five kids, um, uh, much of it by herself. And she went on to get teach in special education then got her master's and her PhD at the age of 56. So I, I always feel like an underachiever. <laughs> I, wow. and I didn't get my PhD, but um, I love what you said, because I think, I always, you know, oftentimes, Sandra, I feel like women, we try to perfect and be perfect in everything yes. that we do before we get to the next job. Right. I always tell people, do your next job now. And I right. love what you said, like raise your hand for that uh, extra work. Don't expect to get extra pay, but show people that you'll go above and beyond. Be curious and be a learner. That's so important for your career uh, trajectory. Um, I started out in, in public policy and people thought I was absolutely crazy when I moved from Cisco from running government affairs over to the emerging technology group to build connected energy and smart grid. <laughs> and uh -huh. I have hundreds of engineers. But right. the other thing I al always say to, to women and men is you got to take risk, right? Yeah. If you play it safe, you're going to fail. You've got to learn that failure is part of the learning journey. None of us get it right, but you got to take risk along the way and stretch yourself and be curious. I think for me, I, you know, my, my master plan was I wanted to be an ambassador one day because I love ah. people from other countries and cultures, yeah. and languages. And now I feel like I'm kind of like the ambassador for education technology, but um, you got to take risks. You got to put yourself out there. I also think what's really important is build community. And um, most importantly, find those other female leaders that you can learn from men and women, but sure. we have to have those role models. And I think as role models, we have to give back and cultivate leadership. And with a lot of the women I mentor, it's great to say, hey, you're doing a great job, but you know what's more important? Here's where I'm seeing that you need to have some constructive feedback too, because if no one ever gives you the tough feedback, you never you never get there. You have to get the challenging feedback and it's a gift. Uh, so I spent a lot of time you know, coaching women, pushing them and then giving them constructive feedback that they need um, to succeed in their career. So you know, that's really what I've learned along the way and I'm still learning. It's still a journey for me too. Yeah. Well, you're right about that. And, and, you know, the part about the criticism, and this is difficult for anyone to do, but, you know, uh, 
it, I have found that my success and the people who are most successful are those who, as painful as it is, uh, seek out uh, criticism. And, and while I prefer that it be constructive, still I need all of it. Because, it, you know, criticism is a little bit like humor, right? Uh, it doesn't matter if all of it is true. Some of it is. <laughs> Some of it always is. You know, even if someone has an agenda and they're criticizing you, you know, some part of that you, you need to be aware of so that you can so that you can get better. And the people who are the most aware and the and the and the most uh, uh, interested in you know being excellent. So it's one thing for you for you to want people to think you're excellent, and and everybody wants you to think that they're excellent. But the people who want to really be excellent know that they have to understand uh, their areas of weakness. And they have to be really hyper attuned to the things when they're not going well to at least consider the fact that I could have done something different or I need to do something yeah. better in order yeah. to make progress. No, I agree. And I, I would say if um, everyone that needs to ask for feedback, I ask for feedback from my board. And then not the punish when you get it, right? Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> but, but always ask for feedback. If you're not, then right. that's sort of being brave and taking the feedback and doing something about it. So right. and if people aren't giving you feedback, ask yeah. for it and ask for, just say, I'd like to have, it's great to give me all the accolades, but give me constructive feedback where I can improve, where my team can improve. That's just so important. And I've had, you know, to be honest, I've had men that were very afraid to give tough feedback to women because yeah. they said, quote unquote, I don't want to make them cry. Well, listen, oh. <laughs> everybody can cry. It's not just women. I'm like, you're that, you know, wrong way of thinking about it. Um, so it's, <laughs> those are kind of some of the moments I can't forget. I've always said, you know, it's funny because I've, I've, I've. Don't make us cry, I, Joe. I, I, you know what? I cry. Uh, <laughs> yes. I'll tell you what. Um, I've, I've managed women, obviously, at different points in my career, obviously. Um I feel like crying is just a manifestation sometimes of frustration and we all manifest frustration in different ways. And boy, don't I want any employee to hold that in, let that out behind a shut door, put, get some Kleenex and then get, go back to work. And I'm glad that it came out. Some of us yeah. kick a, kick a can down the road or, you know, punch yeah. a hole in the wall or, <laughs> or, you know, scream into our pillow. We all manifest things in different ways. And I, I really am bridging to, by the way, that, that, what, what you guys just had there, that, I don't know, that was like gold. <laughs> I'm so glad that you were able to have that conversation, but I'm kind of want to piggyback off that concept of frustration because Sandra, you mentioned your personal situation, having kids and going back to school later as this is a market now. This is what didn't used to be a market, but this market of students, these learners, some college, no degree, adult students, those that are, you know, not interested in the residential experience and every college is trying to get into the mix to, to serve these students, but they want different things. Affordability is one, not that all students don't, but these adult students are really hungry for an affordable education. Can you talk about how, if affordability is on the top of your mind, I'm sure it is, but you know, how are you thinking about it? How are you, I don't know, serving students to the best of, of your ability to make sure they can afford an education? Well, thankfully, uh, I have been able to garner enough support uh, through the UT system and through other philanthropy to make it free for families in Texas who make $100,000 or less to, to, to go here free. Amazing. 
So they don't pay tuition and fees uh, at that level. And 75% of our families in this uh, area fall into that category. So that's an amazing uh, accomplishment. And it's helped me to see, you know, tremendous enrollment growth at a time when our strategic plan is to double the number of people that get a degree from our institution. So that's, you know, that's really uh, amazing. amazing. Our industry partners, PSP is one example. We have some foundations who are partnering with me to look at these gaps in our workforce with these really great high paying jobs for which there aren't enough people who are choosing it. And you could connect that with the Permian Basin is an underserved uh, population. They don't uh, go to college or university at the same rate, even as the, at the state. Then this extra financial support has allowed us through our Falcon Free program, we call it, to, to really make it affordable for our students to go. And I also think it's true, and you alluded to this a little bit, you know, students like me, I, I only wish that there had been these really high quality online programs when I was going to school. No, I would get in the car, I would work all day, I would get in the car and drive an hour and sit in class for four hours and at midnight almost drive back and then do that all over again. The, the ability that I would have had to finish much earlier than 10 years if I had these really high quality technology solutions that allowed me to finish my degree would have been amazing. So we have great online programs and we've gotten awesome. even better than that out of COVID. We've, you know, these hybrid opportunities to bring in really great uh, pedagogy through uh, technology has been a game changer for us in many of our it's, students. It's probably, you know, one of the few silver linings of the horrific experience we had with COVID is that it accelerated technology adoption. It, it showed many professors and instructors that they could teach online yeah. and we have the capabilities, we have connectivity, not enough connectivity and broadband for everyone, especially in underserved communities, right. uh, something the White House is working on, but it just showed us that the power of technology, but it doesn't replace the human element either. It just amplifies and gives single parents and um, you know individuals who are working an opportunity to, for the best of both worlds on campus in person and online. I think that's really powerful and it's awesome to hear the work that you've done to promote that in uh, at UTBP. Well, and in this community, we have something unique uh, in the sense, you know, the oil and gas industry has, you know, some pretty severe cycles and those are getting a little bit better. But, you know, uh, when when the oil prices are up and it's booming, a boom time around here, you can make $100,000 a year driving a water truck with, with not even a high school degree. Okay. Wow. Wow. But they're the first to be laid off when it cycles back. And so what we've been able to do is not to disparage someone from uh, taking care of their family and make $100,000. Why would I do that? Uh, gosh, I wish I could have had that opportunity when I was going through. But what we want to do is to say, look, you don't, we don't have to be your, you know, your main squeeze right now, but get started, take a class. You know, start on your plan B. Let's 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 support you into making some progress. And then before you know it, their plan B becomes a really important plan A. It's interesting that you say that. I didn't think about that. That makes a lot of sense. Some of your outs are because people are going, well, look, I'd love to finish my degree, but I'm going to go make 100K driving the water truck. Who could blame And them? there's absolutely no way I can turn this down. So I'm going to do that. And then six to eight months later, 
I lose my job because the oil and gas is, um, has tanked, um, no pun intended, but now I'm like, okay, I can come back and finish my degree. Typically, and you know this, Sandra, it's completely opposite of that. It's, you know what, I'm in school and I have a bill now that's due right. and I can't pay it. So I'm going to go try to find a job somewhere doing whatever I can to pay this bill that I have on my car because I, so it's really opposite of which, and it's really hard to retain students when they're leaving for something like 100k a year that makes retention nearly impossible right so you have to plan for that that's a really interesting um a wrinkle in right. what we typically would think of of retention and do employers do some of the employers are they proactive to say hey while you're driving the water truck, we want you to take a course like sometimes it's just getting them to take the one thing to register are, is is that hard to do or do are more employers really encouraging like education well, along with their work? Yeah, some of them are. And, and by the way, the, you know, those people who drive a water truck, sometimes they're sitting in their car waiting to pick up a load. They have lots of time, uh, wasted time that they, they can get started and do their homework and, you know, on the computer with a hotspot. And we provide hotspots for, you know, students who don't have connectivity. And so, you know, there are opportunities, uh, you know, to do that. And I, and I think, you know, Joe, you were, you were talking a little bit about, you know, the, the wrinkle that we have here and some of the things. I think that also illustrates the public policy issues around uh, metrics uh, that, uh, you know, support the performance uh, of higher education. You know, the retention is, uh, you know, an important metric and we certainly do care about that. And it's really important for people to understand that that person who had to stop out because their transmission went out or because they couldn't pay their rent that semester or because someone died in their family and they had to go back to work to, you know, to, to care for their, their, their family, stopping in and stopping out while it's not optimal is not the end of the world. Yeah. If we can continue to support people through their journey and celebrate and support those institutions who hang with it, you know, they hang with those students and they don't give up, um, you know, that's, that is a, a you know, a, an accolade and not a, a detriment, right, to what we're trying to do. Uh, I'm going to go back to something you said, because sometimes people say something and go, ooh, I got to come back to that one. And I'm coming back to it. And you said something about overhauling programs being hard. And right, welcome to higher education where overhauling programs is hard. It is, it's hard because there's policy around these things. There's ownership of these programs. People don't wanna change them. It, classes could be eliminated if you change something that affects somebody's job in ways. So there's a lot of reasons why programs don't get overhauled. Simultaneously, business and industry demands that you overhaul programs so that you can create relevancy in your programs to get people jobs. That balance is tough. How do you get around this, especially in a region like yours, where your our industry is saying, hey, look, we'd love to employ people, but you got to have relevant programming versus the institution that's trying to go find partners. It would seem like you're in the middle of the partners. Right. Yeah. Um, how do you balance that? Well, it's about it's about it's always about people. Right. It's about leaders and people. I mean, uh, you know, I work very hard to hire innovators. I, I, I work really hard to hire people and I'm not always successful at that. And you can't always tell everything from the resumes or the, you know, the uh, interviews. So I've made some mistakes and we all do at this level, but, but I work really hard to find people who are uh, 
focused on the, the work and the impact that the university has in the community and for the students, not on themselves, not on their programs, not on you know, their status uh, you know, as a professor or as a program. And the more uh, of uh, that tribe of people that I can uh, bring in and that mentality that is that permeates my leadership team, uh, and then that informs the kinds of faculty members that we hire, then we can make more progress. It's still slow. Academia is very slow to adapt and to innovate. Uh, you know, that there's no way to get around that. But we work really hard to make uh, meaningful progress on that. And I think we've done better than most. Wow. Laura, do you have any final questions for our guests before I give her our final two to end the episode? Okay. And to make sure I don't make another rookie mistake here, but um, Everybody I, love does, said about okay. in, I love what you said about innovation of people and technology. And I, I would say the one thing that came up at ASUGSV is, you know, there's a big new innovation coming to a theater, a higher education institution soon. That's actually my mother. Hold on, I'm turn it up. Um, no, call calling me. <laughs> um, and what are your thoughts about uh, AI, machine learning, Chat GPT? Every single session, and there were hundreds and hundreds at um, all of the events that I've been to, have been talking about it. And I'm just curious, from your vantage yeah. point, um, you are an innovator. You understand technology. What does that mean to um, UTPB? Hey kids! Well, it's it's, it's both exciting and uh, nerve wracking, right? I mean, so uh, you know, I've had faculty members who are concerned uh, about uh, you know the use of AI for what is the equivalent of plagiarism and how hard it is to stay on top of that, and and how that may be a, a drain on the creativity and the you know actual work of their students. And the same is true, you know, that the provost may have on the faculty and research papers that they do. So, you know, there's the negative side that you have to overcome. But, you know, I'm just a big believer that really any uh, opportunity to innovate around technology, there are always silver linings. There are always something that you can take from that technology and find a positive way to get better uh, as a university. And so we, you know, we we think that new frontier is uh, worth the risk to make sure that we don't, you know, miss the boat on something exciting that could really help our university get better. No, I think that's a great way to think about it. I think more institutions are thinking about what are the rules of the road. And you never want technology to replace humans, but it can amplify, it can take the burden of administrative things off Everyone is talking about how it will actually change recruiting and maybe get you closer to the talent that's the best fit for you faster. So there are a lot of amazing things that are going to happen. It's here right now, and it'll be exciting to see how that impacts higher education from personalized learning, from talent. Um, but you're absolutely right. You know, we have to make sure we have the rules of the road and that we we protect against the, the challenges that it'll present as well. Yes, agreed. Thank you. That was a, a message delivered by two innovators in the space. And um, so we want to be respectful of your time, Sandra, and, and leave you with the last two questions we ask every guest. The first one's an open mic question. You get to talk about UTPB and say anything you want. 
take a couple of minutes. You can plug where you're speaking next. You could talk about your team. I'm giving you a bunch of ideas, new programs, innovations. You talk about Laura, you talk about me. No, you can talk about UTPB. What, what, what's happening there? And then two, what do you see for the future of higher education? Yeah. Well, thanks for the opportunity to brag about my university. I, I'm, I'm so proud of it. I've, I've been the president here for almost six years and it has gone by in a flash. You know, I told uh, J.B. Milliken, our chancellor, the other day, I can't believe that I have the opportunity to wake up every day and, and work in this job. I just think it is such a fit for what I love and for what I'm passionate about. And, you know, we're really making a difference here. I think this is a university that is a University of Texas institution with all of the high academic achievement that comes from that. But it is a university that has a heart for students uh, and a heart for making sure that our students have that personalized uh, attention and support that will allow them to be successful wherever they are and whatever their dreams and their goals are. I'm most proud of our ability uh, to make sure that we connect with our businesses and our industry partners, partners so that students have that career opportunity and that paid internship way before they graduate. We're known for that. And I think one of the things that, uh, you know, particularly for our uh, uh, geology and engineering uh, programs, we are in the heart of the Permian Basin, you know, a major en energy uh, place in the world. And their internships in our backyard are not like uh, there are anywhere else, <laughs> you know, and we have great relationships with our industry partners. So it's a great place to go to college and it's a great place to finish. And, and it's a wonderful community to be in. So uh, thank you for the opportunity to brag. You got it. What do you see for the future of higher education, Sandra? Well, I think, you know, there are a lot of uh, disruptors out there. There are a lot of things that are changing and, and, and I think it's going to be really important for institutions to be even more focused on the value that they bring to the students, the value added, that social mobility that comes from uh, what is the X factor that the students have in their lives uh, that they wouldn't have had without that university education. And secondly, I think it is important for us to understand that our ability to uh, create economic development opportunities and to stoke the economy through our research and our spending and all of the economic multipliers that come from a university in a town is important to remember too. So, you know, we, uh, we want to make sure that we're not left behind in the sense of our focus as a service uh, uh, to our community and to our students. Wow. Well, I love this episode. I, I want to thank both of you because what chemistry uh, and great conversation as we celebrate the good work we do here um, in higher education. We have to remember we do noble work. We do change the lives of people. There is a lot of negativity out there about the value of a degree and should you go to college and boy, I still think you should. You just have to think about how you want to go. Um, and and going to college isn't one way anymore and we have to remember that there's lots of options um i'm gonna i'm gonna get my uh guest co-host outro here she's the one and only actually i got the mug right down here now i gotta send it to her laura ipson ceo of Lucian. now my newest guest co-host getting the mug laura it is such an honor for you to co-host these episodes thank you thank you so much and our guest today your guest today here she is, she is Dr. Sandra Woodley. She is a force, and she's the president of the University of Texas Permian Basin. Sandra, we hope you had a good time on the podcast today. My pleasure, I enjoyed it so much. 
We enjoyed having you. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, you've just ed upped. Are you a Genzabar user or super user? Well, it's time to jam at Genzabar Jam, May 31st through June 3rd in Orlando, Florida. Register today at jam.genzabar.com. Experience Element 451's Engage Summit Conference this June and get ready to unleash the power of AI in higher ed marketing. Deep dive into how this emerging tech will revolutionize the education landscape. From personalized student engagement to turbocharging your marketing efforts with AI, these sessions are guaranteed to help you smash your enrollment goals. Connect with like-minded professionals, explore cutting-edge ed tech products and services, and leave with the knowledge to supercharge your institution's growth. Don't wait. Register now at engage.element451.com and seize your chance to lead the pack in the AI-driven education revolution. Use promo code EDUP50 for $50 off your registration.